This short code podcast is a proud member of the MedEd Media Network. Inspiration, information, and guidance on your journey to medical school and beyond at mededmedia.com. Meandering in the margins of medicine, it's the short code podcast. Weird news, fresh views, helpful clues, and interviews. By students, for students. Subscribe to our weekly show at theshortcoat.com. Welcome back to the Short Coat Podcast, a production of the University of Iowa Carver College of Medicine. I'm Dave Etler. Uh, with me today are my med student co-hosts. Say hello to M2 Sarah Costello. Hello. M1 Zachary Shepard is here. Good day, everyone. M2 Nicole Hines has joined us. What's up, nerds? And AJ Chowdhury, who's an M2, is back. It's me, your boy. If you thought that was all, though, shortcuts, well, you couldn't be more wrong, because today we're visiting with the author of a recent book, A Fullness of Uncertain Significance, Stories of Surgery, Clarity, and Grace. He's also a head and neck cancer surgeon at the Medical College of Wisconsin. Dr. Bruce Campbell, welcome to the Short Code Podcast. Thank you very much, David. Thank you. I am very glad to have you here. We've known each other through our Examine Life conference and our Examine Life journal for many years. I know you've had many of your essays published in medical journals and literary journals. So congratulations on your on your book, A Fullness of Uncertain Significance, which brings, I, my understanding is it brings many of those essays together to, that trace your journey from you know, a wide-eyed, a 17-year-old nursing assistant to a um, long-time head and neck cancer surgeon. So that's kind of an interesting sort of longitudinal perspective. Yeah, it was a lot of fun to put it together. I'd been writing essays for years and publishing them in various places, and it was just great to kind of build the arc from one end to the other of yeah. my career. That's a goal. So the title, A Fullness of Uncertain Significance, I have to say seems ready-made for just about any book of of essays or poetry or any kind of collection of writing it's a lovely title but i wanted to talk about the medical meaning what is that sure. what, what is that as the uh, technology has improved with uh, radiology particularly over the course of my career so i i started in the days when i first began ct scans were brand new and then the mr came on board and then pet scans and so with each increasing level of technology in imaging studies there has been you know that you discover stuff and, and any of us who've had scans done for one thing they typically find two other things that require some sort of evaluation anytime you have a have any pictures done yeah. So our radiologists are great, and they will look at things where there are findings that they know about and tell us about, but then there's always one or two things that just don't have a real obvious anatomic or clinical correlation and they'll look at those and they'll say well that's I'm not sure why that's there and you know I think you know maybe it requires another study to follow it up or maybe it requires an additional you know time to see if there's a change in it but they'll call it fullness or a, a finding of uncertain significance and uh, to me that was a place where stories often begin as you uh, have that moment of uncertainty or ambiguity which is so common in our lives in medicine and it, it's a place to to intersect with patients and the physician's narrative and that's that's where a lot of these stories take off i think what i like about it is that it sort of sums up in a lot of ways the the medical learner experience of not knowing what the hell is going on <laughs> most of the most of the time and and perhaps also the experience as you continue in medicine you know everybody everybody wants to have something be cut and dried and what they learned in the textbook and it turns out to 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 not be that way in, in medicine a lot right. of the time. Yeah, no, that's true. And a lot of physicians, particularly those of us who head into surgical fields, don't do real well with uh, uncertainty. And so these are moments where uncertainty reigns supreme. Yeah. The other thing that struck me about this is there are certainly lessons to learn from what you write in the book, but I, I never felt bludgeoned by those lessons. So perhaps <laughs> it's more accurate to uh, say that you're bearing witness to both the things you've seen and the struggles and triumphs of the of the people you met along the way. Yeah, I've, I've been reminded <clears throat> frequently over the, the years of my own um, shortcomings and failures. <laughs> and I try and, keep, try and keep those uh, front and center as I'm writing these stories because, you know, I don't have all the answers. <clears throat> and I hope that the, what the book does is stimulate other people to look at their own moments of doubt and concern and maybe reflect on their stories and maybe even write their own book. I think that's a good place to ask the question. If students are interested in like 
making sense of their experiences and are interested in doing that in writing, what would your advice be for starting now as medical students? Well, thanks, Nicole. You know, we do that. Actually, I have a, a session I do twice a year with our entire M3 class where they I get them to do it's it's called close reading, which is where we read a piece of narrative together as a group, have a conversation, and then write in the shadow of that piece. So, or it doesn't have to be literature, it can be poetry, it could be music, it could be anything. But it's it's a process where people work, you know, and I love doing it in groups, because not only do you see how a piece affects you, but it, how it affects others as well. So I think that's been a great experience to... Uh, to learn to write with others because medicine is a team sport. And if writing is team sport in the same way, we learn to, to think together and sometimes that could be a real, a real benefit. But there's lots of, and more and more actually, places for, for students to, to publish. But I guess what I would encourage people to begin with is just uh, journaling. You know, even if it's a, a very simple process of every day sitting down and you know what, what happened today that I'm grateful for, what happened today that uh, surprised me. Just a couple of points that allow you to, to take those moments that you've had and reflect for just a bit to see exactly how they're affecting you along your journey. And you, you talk about journaling, and, and my... My understanding, my feeling I get out of this book is that's where all these pieces came from. I mean, you've, I, I, I picture you writing these things down over the years and then throwing them into a trunk or a binder or a folder or something and then sifting through them later to come up with what you were going to put into this book. Uh, is that what you did or are you just really good at making things sound um, more, ex- more extemporaneous? Well, it's, it's half and half, I guess. From a practical perspective, I, I actually, you know, these are my... I've got dozens of these journals that I've kept over the years. These uh, little found a kind I like, and I generally have it with me or not far away. And I just jot down ideas uh, during the day and maybe my write. I don't write every day, but when I do, it's about things that are I'm thinking about. But most of the stuff I write about is happens to be you know top of mind things. I will have had an experience with a patient that just made me go, no, that was really weird. What, what just happened there? And I'll, I'll take a few <laughs> notes and maybe I'll start writing it. And I'm sure you've all had that experience where you start writing, you just put pen to paper and just keep on going. And suddenly the story takes a turn or you've, you make a discovery in the process of, of, of putting words on paper. And that's where the magic happens. That's where it's, it stops being just a strict recitation of, of the day's activities and starts being a discussion of how this is affecting me or how, what I learned from this or how, what this patient taught me. And so sometimes those things uh, come you know, pretty close at hand after an experience I've had with a patient. And some others, you know, maybe I've jotted down messages about them. I've run across them in a journal looking back later, or it's just something that percolates to the surface. You know, some of these stories, it took me years to write about. Others, you know, came up the, the next day. So it, it all depends on on uh, how it affects me. But I actually have a little, you know, slush pile thing in the back of my book <laughs> that I carry forward from one journal to the next of, Things I'd like to write about, but I haven't quite gotten around to it yet. So if I'm ever kind of stuck, I've got a little list of memory hints and to kind of kick me going and get me get me started again. Well, that's one of the things I particularly have enjoyed reading through the chapters of this book is that, you know, from a just like, I guess, a medical student perspective, there's always an interesting medical case to look at or at least like an interesting decision that might have to be made or whether that's a a new surgical approach or even just the novelty of seeing something for the first time. I think that's something that as med students we can definitely relate to and I think we will continue relating to as we progress through these stages. But I love that each one of these stories has like that palpable moment that you have this shift from what was happening to the reflection and like what you learned and yeah, I just found those sometimes would just like subtly creep in and I just really loved them though. Like particularly, I, I know that one stood out and I'll remember the name of the chapter should have underlined it, but you were talking about the first time you saw a, I believe it was a pus draining. And oh the, God. Uh, yep, yeah, that was every so one of us, I guarantee you that everyone who has read this book remembers that scene. Oh, it was so good. It, I mean, I think <laughs> medically it was, you know, the description was very riveting and you do feel like you're there watching this, you know, abscess getting drained. But then also I just remember like having to just stop at the end of the chapter because it went so seamlessly to like, I learned viscerally like what the situation looked like i learned the smells and the sights and i learned that it's okay for a senior physician 
to look at a medical student in discomfort and just smirk. And I was like, whoa, I just need to like sit down and like process that. I just loved how it just sort of flowed in and gave that sense of realization. Well, and let's be clear, what he learned was that and and you had to unlearn that. Yes, exactly. Last, yeah. That last part. I don't want to. That don't was wanna... not the lesson. <laughs> yeah, the, le- <laughs> the lesson is not smirk. No. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But yeah, it was no, just fascinating. That piece is called the hidden curriculum, mm-hmm. and that's uh, very much you know. And I got to tell you, that's that happened to me when I was working as a nursing assistant, probably around 1973 or so. Right? How many years ago? And I, I can tell I you, it's it like, like yesterday. Those, almost and those 50 are the kind years. Of stories that a lot of the stuff that you guys are experiencing now in your early, you know, your preclinical and your early clinical experience as a medical school, you will carry through with you till you're taking off your white coat for the last time. Because mm-hmm. these are the those formative moments. And I, I like how you put that, Zach, because it's these are the things that are the commencements, right? These are the, the first time you experience something is much more intense and important to you than the 50th time you experience something. And it, it's more more formative, more meaningful. And that's, I guess, you're right. Those are the kinds of things that caught my attention. Maybe do some writing. Hmm. There was something really deep about like the end of a story about draining an abscess. That's kind of funny to think about. But when you think about the fact that you're talking about things in the hidden curriculum that you don't really understand until you experience them, and then you have the sentence about making the association between the word putrid and what it smells like. And I stopped and I thought, if a reader has actually experienced this, they automatically have this like very nauseating smell in their mind. But if they haven't, it has so much less impact. And it was just kind of, I don't know, I found it beautiful how it was just another way that the story was like supporting the concept that it was portraying. Thanks. No, I I appreciate you saying that because that's exactly how it felt to me. I, I once met a physician who, an emergency room physician who said, if if the physician has ever had a kidney stone, they will take pain much more seriously of another of a patient that comes with a kidney stone than someone who hasn't had one. So I think those personal experiences sometimes are really critically important. So, And yet, uh, a lot of times medical students are, or at least maybe even more in your day, medical students Ooh. were taught to divorce themselves from their patients and what their patients right. were feeling in order to maintain some sort of objectivity. And I think that's still true today, but I think it's less so. So maybe that's something medicine has learned between then and now. But that's- Yeah, I don't know how well we do it. I mean, I'd, I guess I'd, I'd throw that back to you guys. I mean, I, I mentioned in one of those pieces the story from Arkansas from several years ago where they measure vicarious empathy, where you measure it in college seniors and you have a, a high level of empathy. And you and the vicarious empathy is your ability to feel someone else's discomfort or pain. Even by the end of the first or second year medical school, that level has dropped pretty considerably. And I talk to students all the time who say, you know, I had, well, I've had students that are worried that they cry too much. I've had other students that say, if I, if I get too involved in my patient, I'll be unable to provide them good objective care. And we, I think we automatically throw that armor up because we think that's what we're supposed to do. And that's what we term professionalism, right? We want to become professional doctors. And that's the difference between professionalism and humanism in my world. Humanism is being real people. Professionalism is being a real doctor. I guess I try to tell people steer toward being more human than being professional in that setting. Hmm. But I guess I'd throw it back to you guys. Do you feel already that you're seeing patients in a different light than you might have before you started medical school? So in our M2 year, we start getting into the idea of being a med student in the clinic through interviewing and doing physical exams and doing a basic workup of a real patient in the hospital. And I remember with my first real patient is what they call it. I ended up really, really liking my patient. He was very kind. His family adored him and was overall just very healthy person. But after I finished the interview and the physical exam, the patient was waiting on their biopsy results. I saw the biopsy results came back and it was pancreatic cancer. And I just thought for the next week about how this is probably going to be a life changing diagnosis, not just for him, but also for his family and friends and the community around him. And I started to see where that empathy starts to drop off, because if you keep that empathy too high for too long, it starts to eat away at you. That was that was one thing that I was that I took away from a lot of your stories was how you'd managed to keep 
that empathy even in the face of those like really hard hard cases and working through those those difficult decisions with those patients and one thing I had had thought of was was that that study and how medical students sort of lose that empathy over time and I wondered if that was your sort of intention as you were writing these pieces to, to inspire students to write if you think that that might be a, a useful way for students to hang on to that empathy as they go through their training? Yeah, thanks, Sarah. I think certainly writing is one way. And I guess my main goal is, I, I don't think I'm going to change people's general trajectories that much, but I guess I want people to think about it. I mean, I want people to be self-aware that if something is happening to the way that they're seeing others who are suffering in a way that is not, you know, in a way where you are somehow affiliating with that person and advocating for them, that there's something wrong. So um, the example I've been using, and I think I used it in the book, I've used it in a recent essay, I can't remember if I was in the book or not, but um, think of yourself reading a, a book that you loved in high school. There was some book that you read in high school that you you know, you stayed up till two o'clock in the morning reading. You couldn't put it down. It just it just grabbed your attention, and everything about that book was amazing to you. And you, you, when you finished the book, you wanted to read it again. You went and found your best friend and told that person all about how great this book was. You know, we said when the protagonist was attacked, you were afraid and angry. When the protagonist was sad, you wept. And I said, how come we? We're willing to attach ourselves to a fictional character in a novel more intensely than we are willing to attach ourselves to our own patients, right? All of those emotions that we feel when we're reading fiction are ways of rehearsing how we might feel when we're dealing with with really with people who are actually suffering, who are actually sitting in front of us instead of people who are, you know, just on the page of a book. And that's a hard. That's a hard leap for a lot of us to make in medicine because we are so attuned to being in a, a world where you know we need this separation because otherwise we will be just a you know a, a jelly bag of, of of weepiness because we can't deal with the sadness that's in front of us every single day. And I have you know colleagues who've been in the ICUs for the last 20 months with uh, dealing with COVID patients and separating families from their from their loved ones, and it's just been awful. But those who have been able to come out and tell stories, I think maybe that's been a way that they've coped. And we've certainly been trying to help help people, you know, go through the narratives of what that's been like. But like I say, if, if you can if you can connect with a protagonist in a novel, you can connect with a patient, and you can survive both experiences and, and come out a better person. That is not the way we normally think in medicine, but that's the way I try to at least bring that up as an alternative for my patients and students. Do you think that that's that's something that that we should be doing in all medical schools as more like part of the curriculum, standard curriculum for medical schools, talking about those sorts of things, talking about narrative medicine? And is it is it the standard sure. part? I know we talk about it a little bit in our curriculum, but depends where you go. Yeah. Yeah, so Columbia University in New York is sort of the home base of narrative medicine, and they've had a program there of grant funded projects they've done with their medical students and also in outpatient clinics for 20 years. But even they'll tell you that, you know, there are some students that this is just like, you know, there's just no way that this makes any sense to them. And But then some students who are so attuned to this, they would do it anyway. So it's I guess it's the students sort of in the middle that you're trying to say, look, here's an alternative that you can use to, you know, for resilience. And we're obviously talking about wellness all the time now. If you can get students to understand the process of narrative and how it connects between narrative in a movie or a story or a song and narrative at the bedside, they can find ways of interpreting stories in a way that helps them affiliate and and help the patient. So I think it's not going to work for everybody. You know, mandating it, I don't know. I'd love to see it more widely used. And part of the problem is there just aren't enough people who really are adept at uh, teaching it or modeling it. A lot of us are, I mean, I'm, I'm an amateur at this. I've taken a little bit of extra training in narrative medicine, but it's not like I have a PhD in, you know, comparative literature or something like that. There are a few physicians that do, but they're, you know, not, not very many. So how do you, how do you uh, help people understand it without making it seem like just one more sort of Mickey Mouse exercise in medicine. So I, I think it, I would think that we will probably slowly 
move in that direction as you know, every curriculum, every medical school does a major curriculum revision every 10 years or so. So as those things happen, it'll probably it'll probably come into play more and more. But again, it's it's designing the curriculum, making it relevant, finding ways to have it so it's not crowded out by the you know the the harder sciences, and also you know there's just so much we need to to learn and and uh, become adept at in medical school. This is just sort of uh, one bit. I would love to see it happen more, but I don't know how that's going to happen. Well, I think one of the answers might be to encourage people to not just write, but to do whatever form of expression they connect with and enjoy. You know, writing gets a lot of it. I, for, for some reason that I'm not entirely clear on, and maybe it's the influence of of Rita Sharon and, and NYU's narrative medicine program, but writing gets a lot of attention. On the, on the opposite side, my experience is that students are often like not happy to write and you know they they think of themselves as not good writers and your writing has you know an elegance and simplicity and and we in the writing program you know often hear this from students oh i'm a terrible writer but what students don't see when they're reading you know great writing or even good writing is how many drafts it took Mm -hmm. to get from that first idea to something that they ended up reading in somebody in a book or anthology or a journal article or whatever. And it's puzzling to me because, you know, like students understand, you know, practice makes perfect. But as far as writing goes, it's like, oh, I can't be a writer. You've got to be very vulnerable and and you've got to have courage to be able to put those those thoughts down on paper. It takes a lot of self-confidence to think that that your thoughts and words mean enough to actually um, materialize into paper. I think I think there's also another level to that with like some of the reflections we have to do like there's potentially like problematic things in people's backgrounds like trauma that can arise during that and like feeling safe and feeling comfortable like with your facilitators and like knowing who's going to be reading that and like not just having the like the confidence to put it on paper but to like actually know that somebody else is seeing this part of you when we're so guarded about all of it in medicine. Yeah. That's really a great point. There's there was an essay in the academic medicine a couple of years ago about reflection fatigue by a, actually an English major medical student at I forget Hopkins or Duke that wrote about they had he actually counted up how many times in his first two years they'd had some sort of exercise where they were required to do reflective process. <laughs> and there was no coordination between them. It was just like, you know, write, you know, whatever. And and obviously your your faculty members are lovely people as are ours, but we don't know how to grade those things or what yeah. kind of rubrics to use. And and is one person's reflection not as good as somebody else's reflection? And that's just crazy. And you know, there's a very lovely woman, Hetty Wald at Brown, who's actually comes up with rubrics for grading narrative pieces in medical school. And I like to understand it more. But I think. So when I do reflective work with students, I never have them turn it in, I, and I never have anybody required to read out loud because it's just exactly what you, what you're saying, Nicole. I think there's we have to be careful that you know that a lot of this stuff triggers people, and a lot of people, as, as David was saying, you know, a lot of students have not done any creative writing since you know college, uh, you know, or maybe even high school, and suddenly you're in medical school. I will warn you that there is one experience that you will have in medical school where you absolutely have to do some sort of reflective writing, and that is the personal statement for residency. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, and that that comes along, and it's it's just misery for some students. It really, it yeah. actually, really is. That's one of the one of the workshops I do with the entire third year classes. I mean, to me, it, I call it. Preparing your personal statement for residency application, that's the ruse. What I'm trying to do is get them to reflect on the six most important months they've had in their entire lives, right? This is the first time they've been in the hospital seeing sick people standing at the bedside watching people you know, dying and bleeding to death and things like that. And a lot of times those experiences just shoot past you because there's something else coming the next day or the, the next hour. And you, unless you have a dedicated time to sit down and reflect on it and write about it, You'll, it, it'll disappear. And so that's what I do, but I but I couch it as, look, this is a way to help you get started with your personal statement for residency application. Mm-hmm. And it, it works on both levels. So we do that every year <laughs> for the students. Yeah, that's great. Because yeah, if you want to see a group of angry, anxious <laughs> medical students, talk to them in their 
at the end of their M3 year as they're getting ready to write their, to think about their personal statements for yeah. their residency. Uh, and I will say the Iowa students have some of the best personal statements I've ever seen. Yeah. We've actually, yeah, we've actually been tossing around lately the idea of starting the personal statement process way earlier than we do mm. for that, kind of for that reason, because there's just a lot to think about yeah. and not a lot of time to do it. Listeners, if you ask us a question, it means that I don't have to make something up to talk about on the show. And the show becomes what you want it to be. So send your questions to the shortcoats at gmail.com or leave a message at 347 short CT. We'll talk about it on the show. So I would imagine. So each of you have had some. I mean, uh, Zach's the only M1, right? So, mm-hmm. but, all, but, you, but you've all had some clinical exposure, right? Yep. So you could probably think if, if you had to write a personal statement about you know, what's happened so far in your medical school training that's strictly related to clinical activity, you probably already have a couple of stories that you could write about, right? Yeah, yeah, easily. So, so mm-hmm. yeah, absolutely. So those are, I mean, these are brand new experiences and they and they're stick with you. And if you write about them, then it, it makes it easier to process and you'll also makes you easier, easier to remember later on. So that's why I encourage people to do writing even, even early on. I love your idea, David, of getting people going earlier on that process because that just helps people practice the, the reflective skills that they'll need to create a, a statement down the road. Some of the essays are very, in your, in your book, are very short and simple, but powerful. I'm thinking in particularly of two points along an arc in which you observe two different women, two different locations within days of each other and their sons. And your observations could have been of a single person bookending a, a, a smoker's cancer journey. And others are simple descriptions of interactions you've had with patients. So like just a couple pages later, there's one called Silent Night that relates a, a pleasant but seemingly inconsequential encounter between you and a longtime throat cancer survivor whose voice box was, you know, years before advancements that could have made the operation unnecessary the you know i i just think the juxtaposition of you know what am i calling momentous versus mundane (laughs) well i wasn't going to say mundane i I think that carries but yeah why not mundane has its place too obviously since since i really liked both of them how did you choose what to include in this Uh. in this book that's a great question. So for those who are listening who haven't seen the book, it's uh, 300 pages, but there's 60 essays. So they're all short, partly because I have a short attention span <laughs> and my writing tends to be what I, I like to write, but I really love to edit and I love to edit. So things are very short. That one particular story that about the two points along the arc, I wrote that as a a print column for a newsletter I had to do many years ago that basically it was it was on paper, I had about four column inches to write, and so I really could never do any more than 250 or 300 words. So those all ended up being very short. I just happened to like that one a lot because it was a a very true experience of uh, being at a restaurant just down the street from our house here in Wisconsin, and then also being at, at work in the, on the like the oncology floor. It happened within a few days of each other. Do you do you think so, that one's do you think that one is is too long to read? I mean, it's very short, but do you think oh, it's too long to read? Yeah, I could, Happy to read it. Look okay. at it right here. This is on, uh, for those who are following along, it's on page 115. The little boy is running circles around his mother as she stands outside the restaurant smoking a cigarette. I watch them as I walk from the parking lot toward the entrance. The young woman, who appears to be in her 20s, and her friend engage in animated discussion, the smoke rolling from their mouths and drifting past their faces. Suddenly, the toddler stops running and squeezes his mother's hand. She looks down and... Once her gaze has focused on him, he smiles broadly. She grins back at him, tossles his hair, and he resumes running laps. She takes a drag on her cigarette and picks up the conversation where she left off. A few days later, I am standing at the bedside of a delightful woman in her mid-fifties. Her smoking-related cancer required removal of her voice box and a course of radiation therapy. Once later, her cancer returned with a vengeance. Chemotherapy offered only a temporary reprieve. She is dying. She is at peace, slipping in and out of wakefulness. The end is near. Her whole family has been prepared for this day, and her adult children gather in a semicircle around the bed. One of her boys sits dejectedly in a chair, gripping her hand. Slowly, she awakens, and their eyes meet. He brightens visibly and tightens his grip. She closes her eyes again, and they continue to smile, waiting together in silence. 
It is a powerful moment. I am struck that the two scenes are essentially from the same drama, with the second following inexorably from the first. Within a few days, I have witnessed two points along the same arc. Yeah, I think that's what I'm talking about. Like, this is an important observation. I guess it's also sort of mundane, but at the same time, it's important. I don't know how to express that very well. Maybe a writer. If we, if we knew a writer... <laughs> if only one was on this call. Yeah, could express that better. Oh, come on. Let's see, now, you just all told me that you're writers too, right? I'm sure you can all write. <laughs> I don't know. Is it... No, doctors do, do not think they can write, but you'll spend your entire life typing progress notes into Epic. So I think I get what you're saying, Dave, because it's like the, the first scene is just like a glimpse into the everyday sort of life of, of someone. And then this, the second scene is like this... It's an important moment. An important this, moment. All of these but both lives. of the moments are important as well, too, because it's that, that sweet moment. Both of them are sweet moments between a mother and the, mm-hmm. the son. Yeah, it's interesting. I think it, it says something about the way being a physician changes your view of the world. Like you, you learn people's histories and what their life has been before they land at the place they are with you with whatever diagnosis they have Mm. and i'm assuming it's like you can't go out into the world and not like see these little bits of people's histories being recreated in real life and imagining what those next steps are going to be exactly like it is in this story yeah to tie it back to the the narrative that we were talking about it's almost as if you're learning again like a new source of literature and you've been like reading these uh, I put books in air quotes for you listeners at home because you can't see me. But you know you've been reading these books of patients' lives essentially, and I think with enough experience and exposure, you start seeing the beginning and realizing that you're already making predictions about how the story will go and where it will culminate and climax. And I think that that is what makes the narrative approach both simultaneously fascinating and very wonderful to engage in, as well as somewhat intimidating and even frightening that you're entering a realm of literature so to speak that is much more at least initially ambiguous you know like with a book you know oh i can skip ahead i can see the end you know i can know that the hero's journey will succeed or whatnot but in the physician's life it seems like you're stepping into a story that does not have a definitive end at least as of yet depending where you are in that story and you're kind of having to wrestle being in that unknown and living through that yeah so yeah that just reminded me of the the story about the student drawing the line on the board like you are here and having you put where your age is mm-hmm. and like you don't know when the end is coming mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you guys are hitting some wonderful points and the thing that comes to mind as i'm hearing you're talking about is how in medicine we are so focused on the fact that the patient's problem is only what we see in the you know 15 minutes that they're in our office but they, it's in the context of this huge, wonderful world, this family, this life, this community, this all the other things, and, and we have no concept of what's going on. And that's and that's what all of this, this the great research on, on context and, and patients, all of the things that affect our health, just based on where the, our zip codes and our our diets and things like that, that that just don't even get brought up in the in the standard physician's office. But those are the things that you can do if you start exploring the narrative, because narrative requires background. Narrative requires that the people come from a certain place in order for that action to begin. And so you have to define where they come from. So if if you do that, then you're you're way ahead of your colleagues. I think viewing that as like a person's life and story as a book that's actually kind of poetic and viewing it that way <laughs> and putting it in the context of the narrative. Well, this, this discussion about context, you know, is something that has come up, bef- we talked about it on the show before, but has come up in COVID with telemedicine visits and people mm-hmm. like joining you in your office from their living rooms mm-hmm. and you seeing bits of them and their lives that you wouldn't have seen before with an office visit. I don't know. That's just, for, to me, that's just an interesting, you know, sort of parallel right. to this idea of context. Yeah, how many of us have been on Zoom calls and you know a cat walks through? Oh, uh-huh. yeah, <laughs> get fascinated by the cat. Well, you learn something about a person. I'm, I'm just sort of amazed I haven't had a cat climb on my shoulder while we're yeah, it's, it's, a, it's yeah. only a matter of time. It'll be, it'll be <laughs> Schrodinger's Zoom cat, maybe would be. Yeah. A... <laughs> Mine's normally the kids without clothes on. Yeah. Oh my gosh. <laughs> 
Shortcoats, if you're enjoying our conversation today, I'd be grateful if you'd let people know by posting a story on Instagram or Facebook or tweeting about us. And don't forget to tag us in your post. Thank you. You know, it brings up another point about narratives with our patients is our patients have all these narratives, these complicated lives, but we become a part of their lives when we treat them. And now we're writing their narratives with them. And I just realized just how humbling and honoring of an experience that is that these people get to or these people are coming to us and we get to share this narrative with them for however long we take care of them for. That's really great. That's pretty profound. It goes it almost goes a step farther because like you get to choose like how much control you have in contributing to that narration. Are you a part of the story or are you trying to dictate and write it? Yeah, the essay right after the two points long in arc is about music. And I'm a musician, I'm a jazz bassist. And just reading through that, I was thinking, I broke my hand last year and I needed to get extensive therapy just to be able to play the things that I can play. And looking back now, I'm I'm thinking, oh, wow, my hand surgeon actually took the time to listen to my concerns and make sure I saw the right hand therapist so that I can continue to play at the level that I want to play at. And just thinking about how much that has changed the narrative in my own life, it's just, it's mind-boggling. And a lot of the things we do in medicine are, will rob people of some of the most essential things that they have is that define them. And, you know, we'll say, well, we saved their life, and they will no longer be able to do the things that they, some, you know, particular things they like to do. And that's devastating. But we don't really address that unless we ask the right questions. Dr. Campbell, you mentioned in the introduction, and you sort of have talked about this already, some of your inspiration for writing these stories and having that chance to put them on paper. But I'm curious what your journey looked like from somebody who is writing these stories as a reflection to somebody who wanted to actually publish them and really compile them. What did that look like? Was there like a a definitive moment that you realized that you really wanted to put these together to share with others or Mm. what was that process like? Oh, that's, it's, it's a really good question. Uh, I think I've been writing for a long time. Part of it was I had that column I had to write. And then after I finished that, um, the hospital wanted some essays on their um, website as a blog just to drive traffic. I mean, wasn't because I was a great writer, because they just wanted people to <laughs> look at the website. Yeah, uh, w- w- website owners love to have content on their website. So yeah. they'll, they'll take it from exactly. me. So, <laughs> yeah, so. And, and to be honest, so it was such a refreshing thing to write these kind of essays, because you know, I'm a I'm an academics, you know, physician. I've, I've written, you know, I've 98 whatever papers that have been published in the medical literature, the peer-reviewed stuff that nobody reads. I mean, to be honest, I have a lot more reaction to stories uh, like my mom's pacemaker or, you know, the kinds of things that you see in this book that people, you know, have read that long ago on the blog or something like that, and they still bring those things up. So I found it very rewarding just because people reacted to it. I guess, and I compiled them all in one big Word document when I was thinking about, maybe I want to do, do I have enough really to make a book? And I think I had like 300 stories and, you know, it was, it was you know, like, like 300,000 words. And a book is like 50 to 60,000. So I said, well, I've got enough material. Then I just started chopping and getting rid of the ones that I needed more or needed too much work and, and kept the ones I liked. And there were, were four that had been published in JAMA and a couple of others that had been published in other literature places and one that had been published in the Examined Life Journal, my, my, my proudest moment. <laughs> and so, actually, the, I have a piece of fiction that went in the Examined Life Journal, so I have to do I have to do a fiction one now, too, because I can <laughs> publish that one. Next book. But, uh, yeah, exactly. So, the I did it partly because I was proud of these things, and I guess I wanted to put them in some place that would have, a you know, at least a would outlast me a little bit. I have a grandson who is a year old, and I guess I want to know that when he grows up, he'll have something that he can look at that tells him a bit about what I was. I mean, nothing gives immortality quite as much as potential immortality as the written word. And so I guess that to me was sort of a, if I've sold a few copies, which is great, but the thing that is really makes me proud is knowing that my grandchildren and you know generations beyond will know a bit about who I was and I guess that's what kind of was my inspiration the process of publishing 
So there's lots of ways to publish a book and not to get into the weeds too deeply, but you can do self-publishing, which is basically you go to, you know, like a, a Kindle Direct or something like that and just you know, upload your file and, and put it on uh, Amazon. Or, and as I did, I went to a, a local publisher, made a proposal, gave me a contract. I, I put in some money, they put in some money, and this book they did all the design stuff. They made it look like a book out of my gigantic, you know, Word document. And so it, it's been a, a hybrid process. It's a, you know, it's a small publisher. It's a great family-owned, uh, woman-owned business near my home that I was able to work with. It's not Penguin or Random House or something like that, but that's okay. I, again, it, it met my goal. I wanted to have something that put everything in one place will outlast me a bit and, and was and was fun. And, and I, to be honest, doing things like this, talking to you guys today, this is just absolutely thrilling for me to just be able to talk about the book a bit. I'm afraid that I have to uh, step out for an exam, which I'm realizing has become a pattern for me on the Shortcut Podcast is leaving right. before tests. It's all right, brother. <laughs> Good luck. When you're writing these things down, when you're recounting your experiences, are you doing this remotely from the event or are you doing it like the day that this happens? Because I have a problem with I don't think about these things until months and months later and now the details are blurry. Ah. So, I mean, that's the nice part about being uh, a writer is that you can kind of write what, I mean, you can't write every detail, right? You have to pick and choose. That's actually one of the exercises that Columbia University Rita Sharon does is called radical listening, where you have someone tell you a story in five minutes, and then you're given five minutes to write that story. There's no way you can write down every word or every detail you heard. And so what you write is the parts that, that stick out to you that, that give the context meaning. And so even writing down a story remotely from when it actually happened, you may not be writing every detail. It's kind of like the 10 blind men describing the elephant kind of thing. You, but you write down the, the pieces that were meaningful to you and the reasons that you remember that story. And that, I think, is where a lot of the writing comes from. And so I, my journal is very specific about what I saw maybe the day or two before. But maybe when I finally get around to writing the piece up, it's... Uh, uh, HIPAA compliant, and I've smoothed the edges a little bit. Sometimes I'll combine a couple of patient stories together in order to tell the the, the story I'm trying to tell, or or the understand the lesson I'm trying to understand. I mean, I'm teaching myself as I'm going along, and sometimes you see one patient or remind you of another, and and you figure out how those two things work together. So, so yeah, I I do take notes in you know at, at the time, but sometimes those all make it to the final page, and sometimes they don't. Thank you. I've heard um, or read writers who say, you know, I write because I have to write. <laughs> is that is that you? Yes, is that, <laughs> absolutely. Is that, yeah. yeah I, and I, so if your listeners uh, do get to the Examine Life conference when we hopefully live again next year, you'll meet a lot of people that that is the thing is that you just you can't imagine not writing. And I don't think I was like that. I was a biology major, chemistry minor in college and another big 10 institution not not iowa but i you can mention it it's well, fine i was a boiler i was a boilermaker okay, okay so all right in any case we i did i had one writing class in college and you know the rest of it and my son was a, a computer engineer student at uh, university of wisconsin the only writing class he took was a technical writing class so you know you get you can get pretty far along in education without really ever becoming confident in your ability to hear a story and committed to words, which is kind of weird when you think about it, I mean, <laughs> right? I mean, my daughter's a third grade math teacher and their whole curriculum is, is switching to emphasize reading and language comprehension because if you can't read or comprehend language, you can't do math or you can't, you know, you can't do science. You can't do anything if you can't read and and you, and you understand the processes of how to, how yep. to commit thoughts to uh, to words so. that's the whole thing about word problems you remember you know i i yeah. always struggled with word problems and i struggle with math in general but isn't it right. wonderful word problems teach us how to argue that's not what it says teacher yeah. you, you get all <laughs> you get all sorts of benefits from those so. yeah yeah i would say that nobody i've ever met in medicine says they're a very good writer i mean i don't you know i've gotten better i think but i've practiced i've also been in oh the other thing is i've been in writing groups which really has helped. It's given me so much perspective, and I would never have had the confidence to publish unless I'd been in some, you know, 
critique groups that have helped me to work through some of these essays, but also just to, you know, improve my own technique. So I guess I, you know, that's the nice thing about the writing program at Iowa. You guys have, you have resources and you have, there there are just a few pretty darn good writers on your campus Mm -hmm. and in your program that, that can help with those kinds of things. Now, Bruce, it's no secret that surgeons don't lack confidence. So I guess my question is, did that surgeon's confidence didn't help you out at all? So do surgeons have confidence? I think surgeons have a have a veneer of confidence. I think you that's part of our professionalism. Right. Whether or not we actually are confident or not, I think that's part of the reason that surgeons also have a pretty high rates of burnout and suicide. Mm-hmm. I would say that that's part of the process that I learned with the writing is to understand that uh, humility and transparency are are important attributes as well. Several years ago, our, our Department of Surgery for their surgical clerkship offered an opportunity that students could, you know, instead of doing three H&Ps, could do some sort of creative project. So they could write a song or, uh, you know, write a short story or turn out a lot of students, you know, bake cupcakes and decorate them like, you know, abdominal wounds and things like that. But, <laughs> but there, <laughs> there are some really awful looking cupcakes. Uh, one, one I, would st- I would still eat them, just, just to be clear. One, one student did the aorta out of uh, PVC pipe. I mean, there's just some great <laughs> things that were done. But I, this is what, it, and, and actually this is something that Nicole brought up that I, I, I love this. One of the students did not read her story, but had one of the faculty read it for her so she could remain anonymous because it was a story about, as a student, she was in the emergency taking care of a patient who had been a, a victim of domestic abuse and going through this whole thing, taking care of this woman who had been beaten up by her boyfriend and helping her through this and sitting with her and accompanying her through this thing, only to get home and realize that she had been affected by it because she herself was a victim of domestic violence. Mm-hmm. And But she didn't make that connection until later. And then her chance to write about it gave her more tan- chance to process it. And she used that as, as a, her example of a creative activity for her surgical rotation. I've never forgotten hearing that story read, and of course the entire room was absolutely silent. Because how many of our, how many of us carry those burdens around all the time, and never have a chance to share them? Or how many other people are carrying the same burdens that each of us are carrying? And unless we start telling stories, we don't know that we are not alone. So those are the kinds of things that I think narrative really, really has a role in medicine: is building community within our 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 cadre, but also showing how we are so similar to the people we care for in many ways that we never would realize unless we start thinking about the narrative. That brings up something I've been thinking about a lot of this episode, and it's have have you seen narrative writing used as a tool for physicians, medical students, healthcare professionals to like navigate the mental health minefield that we're encountering every day? It certainly is touted as being something that's useful. I, again, it's problem with educational activities is everyone wants measurable outcomes, and yes. it's just so hard hard to know if, if we're making an impact. Yes, narrative. I mean, you think about the whole field of psychiatry. I mean, psychiatry is built on narrative, and mental health requires narrative in order to even uh, be investigated. But uh, are we using it properly or do, using it in the best ways? Or are we using it in ways that help move the needle for people? I don't know. I don't know. How do you feel about that I mean, whole issue of like needing data to, su- <laughs> to support these activities? Well, we're going through a curriculum redesign at our institution right now. And that's one of the big things is how do you measure that, you know, you're doing things. I mean, your, if your goal is to create caring, compassionate physicians that uh, will, you know, take good care of patients and stay well, that is a, you know, score, you know, 57.3 on this scale yeah. and 92.1 on that one. And it's hard. Yeah. On the other hand, I think if we don't try to find ways to measure, we are losing an opportunity. So I think a lot of the, the big outcomes, we won't know for years if they were successful, but I think we need to try and find ways to, to, to measure them without, you know, torturing people with too many surveys. <laughs> no, let's just keep doing hundreds and hundreds of surveys. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> 
medical students yeah. uh, if you're if you know if you if you haven't made it to medical school yet you'll you'll soon realize that there's nothing medical schools love more than a good than a good survey yeah you'll learn what qualtrics is yeah. all the time mm. <laughs> <laughs> it just triggered spent four months learning about qualtrics this summer and i still don't know what's going on yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy that's our show uh, Dr. Bruce Campbell, thanks for sharing with us your book, A Fullness of Uncertain Significance, Stories of Surgery, Clarity, and Grace. Uh, how can people learn more about you and your work? Thank you very much for asking that perfect question. My website is uh, Uh There's a link in there under the book tab that uh, shows all the places that people can order if they wish. And if you want a signed copy, order through the publisher, which is 1016 Press, and it shows how to do that. But thank you. Yes, yeah, really. This was absolutely a delight for me, and I appreciate the chance to talk to you and to the to our the great students at the University of Iowa. Yeah, listeners, go out and get the book. It's really good. AJ, Nicole, Sarah, and Zachary, who left. Thank you for joining me on the show today. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Dave. Thank you. And what kind of misplaced modifier would I be if I didn't thank you, Shortcodes, for making us part of your week? If you're new here and you like what you heard today, follow the show wherever fine podcasts are available. Our editors are AJ Chowdhury and Eric Bozart. The show is made possible by a generous donation by Carver College Medicine Student Government and ongoing support from the Writing and Humanities Program. Our music is by Dr. Vox and Catmosphere. I'm Dave Etler saying don't let the bastards get you down. Talk to you in one week. Hi, Shortcoats. Look, life in medical education, life in America, life in the world is often difficult. And I often wish I could help. All I have is this podcast, but in my wildest dreams, you have the support you need to lead a life of your choosing. You deserve to be happy, healthy, and successful in whatever ways you define those words. So if you need support because you've experienced racism, discrimination, harassment, mental health crises, I want you to be able to get the help that you need. And so I'm going to put some links in the show notes to some resources that you can use But the bottom line is that, for what it's worth, I see you, I know you're out there, I wish I could do more. Maybe I can in ways that I don't understand yet or know about, but I see you, and I'm glad you're here, and other people are too. 